Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he says that he wants you to have an apocalypse. And not in the way that we use that word today, like an earth-destroying meteorite or a horde of brain-eating zombies. Rather, this Greek word apocalypse means to uncover something that is hidden. Because that's what happened to Paul. He thought he was on the inside of God's grace and most everyone else was excluded. He was known as Saul then, and he protected his privileged status ferociously as he'd hunted and attacked early Jesus followers. But that's when the crucified and risen Jesus stopped him in his tracks to reveal to Saul that God is making all the divided things one. Paul calls this the mystery of the gospel, all things made one. And once this was revealed to him, it drastically changed how Paul saw the whole world, church, politics, relationships, literally everything. Ephesians, then, is Paul's response to his own apocalypse, a passionate essay summarizing the most important apocalyptic event in history, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and the gift of the Spirit to bring new creation right here in the present world. And Ephesians is a letter written for us so that we might have our own epiphanies about this mysterious thing that God is doing. That's why this winter, during the season of Epiphany, Salthouse is reading through the book of Ephesians, about one chapter each Sunday, so that we might both comprehend this mystery of God's love. Paul spends chapters one through three focused on that, our hearing and understanding, and that we might respond to this mystery of God's love, which is what chapters four through six focus on, taking action. It's what we do. Are you ready to have an apocalypse now? to uncover something that is hidden that just might change everything. Only if we have ears to hear it can we have the heart to be it. But it's God's dream for all things to be made one. So let's dig in to the letter to the Ephesians. What a sermon series. We are here at the end of Ephesians, um, and it's just been an incredible deep dive into the theology of um, Paul's letter. And since there were six chapters, we spent six weeks on it, but it probably hasn't been enough time to do it justice. Um, And as Sarah said, those first three weeks, we looked at how Paul um, had this apocalyptic revelation that God was at work redeeming and bringing together all of creation, uniting Jews and Gentiles, and praying that all people would come to see the oneness of all things. And then in chapter four and five, he's looked at what this means to, um, in our lives. Um, He's looked at how our differences benefit one another, and don't take away from the unity that God desires. And he's looked at how the spirit is alive at work in communities and believers. And as a result, he talks about some of the ways we can live better in community. And um, I think Sarah took us through a great exercise last week of um, prayer and music to do that. And as um, Pastor Sarah said earlier, um, we will explore chapter five further at a later time um, because we know that there's a lot to talk about and um, our COVID interruption didn't allow us to do that deep dive. I think we were harsh. I think a round of applause for three years without a COVID interruption is worth it. It's pretty good. And now today we turn to chapter six and we are gonna talk about some wild things. We're gonna talk about the devil, dark forces, spiritual warfare. Did all the former evangelicals in the room just like cringe a little? (laughs) Or like maybe there's a Pentecostal who's like, finally, this is my stuff. Like, all right. Well, these are things we don't talk about very often at Salt House, um, and they're things that um, progressive Christianity and liberal circles tend to ignore. Um, but we've talked around these things for the past couple of weeks, um, and this last chapter, it's really crucial to Paul's argument. Um, so before we end Ephesians, we're going to do it. Sound good? Yes. 
All right. Well, as you know, in this series, we've been reading the letter to the Ephesians publicly, and that's uh, because letters were read aloud to assemblies um, back in the ancient world. So if we can get a drum roll for one last public reading. We have Brianna untie with our final letter. And we're gonna, our final chapter. We're also gonna pass out chapter five here um, so that you have a complete set. Um, you can get them autographed in the lobby on your way out. Uh, but you'll have the full six chapters. I think Sarah has your mic. Against the tactics of the devil. Our battle ultimately is not against human forces, but against the sovereignties and powers, the rulers of the world of darkness, and the evil spirits of the heavenly realms. You must put on the armor of God if you are to resist on the evil day and having done everything you can to hold your ground. Stand fast then with truth as the belt around your waist, justice as the breastplate, and zeal to spread the good news of peace as your footgear. In all circumstances, hold faith up before you as your shield. It will help you extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. Put on the helmet of salvation and carry the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Always pray in the Spirit with all your prayers and petitions. Pray constantly and attentively for all God's holy people. Pray also for me, that God will open my mouth and put words on my lips, that I may boldly make known the mystery of the good news, that mystery for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may have courage to proclaim it as I ought. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. All right, the devil, the powers, darts of fire, armor of God. This is, this is good stuff. Um, it kind of takes me back to like my fellowship of Christian athlete days and praying around a flagpole, like anybody else have this experience? Yeah. Well, I'm going to be honest. My personal theology struggles with all of this. Like a devil, Satan, demons, dark forces. And I think the origin for me um, like has a concrete story of when I was like, I'm not sure about all of it. Uh, when my family started going to church, we uh, would watch Touched by an Angel on NBC every Sunday. Remember Touched by an Angel? Um, if you haven't seen Touched by an Angel, it's a really good Hallmark television, like with decent theology too. There's this team of undercover angels that help address, um, they like go in disguise and help families deal with their trauma and their secrets, and they heal and they come together and then they move on to the next family in the next episode. Um, but in later seasons, they added a team of demons and the demons were also undercover and they had these little red eyes that spun around in circles and they would interfere and meddle with the cases um, that the angels were trying to solve. And these little red glowy spinny eyes, they gave my brother and I nightmares. So much so that we sat down with our family pastor and he assured us that we would probably never encounter red glowing eyes and incarnate evil like that. that the, that's Hollywood, not the Bible. And to be honest, that was pretty comforting. And honestly, in seminary, I've enjoyed deconstructing theologies of the devil. I mean, it's been kind of fun to pick apart and see where these stories came from and how they evolved. And as my theology evolved, I guess I just felt like conversations about the devil and dark forces and spiritual warfare, it just started to feel escapist to me. Like, we can talk about fighting the devil, but could we talk about the evil of a housing crisis in the east side? or the evil of gun violence in schools, 
or of the evil of trans erasure and legislation. It feels like, well, if we beat the devil, all of our problems go away. It's just too simple. But I know there are many of us who have experienced or witnessed deep and profound evil in our lives. Evil so persistent, visceral, and devastating that it does make me wonder what's behind it. Because we can't deny that evil is real. And just like humans have talked about God and love in anthropomorphic and humanizing terms, language to talk about evil is useful too. And to be fair, if you're like me and the devil or Satan or evil forces are hard for your theology, well, you and me are in the minority because most religions of the world have some concept of evil, of tricksters, of jinns, of rogue kami, of fallen angels, of demons. We need this language for evil. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. And to dig a little deeper into his world and the language he uses, I wanna take a look at the ancient world of Ephesus. I actually went to Ephesus for three weeks in 2019, and I have a few photos for you, because who doesn't love to look at other people's vacation photos? Like, <laughs> um, but I, I thought we'd talk about how ancient people thought about powers and cosmic forces. Um, so Jason, the next photo here, this is modern day Ephesus, um, which is an area in Turkey called Kusadasi. Um, and then the next picture is ancient Ephesus, which is mostly in ruins now. Um, it's actually an UNESCO World Heritage Site protected by the UN as significant to human history and culture. Um, and Ephesus was originally established around the year 1000 BC um, by Ionian people who were ancestors of the Greeks. And during Paul's day, it was part of the Roman Empire. Um, it was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Um, it was a port city where the river Meandes hit the Mediterranean Sea. And in fact, the river Meandes um, that flowed through Ephesus gives us the English word meander. Um, the Meandes is also believed to be the birthplace of malaria. Um, Ephesus was crawling with mosquitoes because of this river. Um, and the Greeks were known for, ancient, for their medicine. Um, they likely studied the earlier work of the Egyptians and North Africans, and they started transforming the science of healing into something separate from religious practice. Um, so I think the next slide, Jason, this symbol here you might have seen, it's a staff with serpents wrapped around it. You'll see it in hospitals today, but it came from ancient Greeks um, and the, the staff of the god Hermes. Um, so if you arrived in Ephesus, as Paul did, you'd come by boat. And the next slide here, if you disembarked, this is the arch you would come under as you went into Ephesus. Um, it was called the Herculean Gate because it depicts Hercules defeating the Nemean lion as one of his labors to re-enter Mount Olympus. And after you pass through the gate, you'd immediately be taken to a little room to be washed. Um, because again, Ephesus was familiar with malaria and other diseases. Um, so they highly valued cleanliness. And this little room they take you to was called a quarantina, uh, which is something Pastor Sarah can tell you all about. <laughs> Once you were um, cleaned, you were then taken to the temple of Artemis, which I think is our next slide. Um, so a word about Artemis. Um, we have to remember that in the ancient world, gods, lands, and peoples are all interconnected. Um, so every god has a land and a people, and every land has a god and a people, and every people has a land and a god, like it's an interconnected system. So when you traveled in the ancient world, when you passed from one land to the next, you'd go worship the local god or goddess. And this made sure that you'd have protection of that deity while you were in their land, um, while also showing respect for the people. So in Ephesus, the local deity was the goddess Artemis. 
Um, and Artemis was the Greek goddess of fertility. Um, her temple was actually one of the um, wonders of the ancient world. Um, the picture of the constructed temple here is a recreation um, that's in Istanbul, and then the other one is actually what you can see if you go to Ephesus today. Um, the next slide is uh, Artemis, and there were various depictions of Artemis across the Greco-Roman world. None of them really looked like each other, um, but this is how she was depicted in Ephesus. Um, being a fertility goddess, she had 29 breasts, which is most, more than the average person has. Um, and there wasn't just a temple of Artemis, there was a small altar to her in the middle of town, which I think is next. Yep, there. Um, and if you were wealthy, you could bypass the field trip out of town to offer your sacrifice at the temple. Um, you could instead go straight here, and uh, if you, you make your small sacrifice. I'm not sure what the difference between the big sacrifice and the little one was, but you had to have money to go into this temple. Um, because in this temple was this flame that was tended 24-7 and kept lit, um, which is a tradition that churches continue today that have a, t a candle lit in their sanctuary 24-7 as a presence of um, the deity. Um, but having a fertility goddess rule over your land was a really good sign. It meant that your soil would be rich and healthy, your food would grow and be nutritious, your marriage would reproduce children, lands ruled by fertility deities were prosperous and wealthy. And Ephesus was. Um, Ephesus was popular with a lot of people. Um, Cleopatra and Mark Anthony um, honeymooned in Ephesus and they actually lived in a fifth-story apartment overlooking the main square. I might have the main square on the next slide. Nope, these are random photos. Um, Homer, um, who wrote you know, the Odyssey, lived just outside of Ephesus. The emperor Celsius built his library here, and that one is on the next slide. Uh, so if you think today about how presidents build a library to celebrate their legacy, um, the Romans did something similar. Um, the sign of a powerful emperor was having a large collection of literature. So think scrolls and codices and maps. And Celsius built his library here to store his collection and demonstrate his power. Um, and then the emperor Hadrian, who was famous for building walls, um, he built his own private temple here in Ephesus, uh, which I think I have a picture of. There it is. Um, and this temple shares an important connection to Seattle. If you go to the next slide, the siren logo over the entrance of Hadrian's temple was used as the face for the Starbucks mermaid. <laughs> and the emperor Hadrian's an interesting case. Um, Hadrian was gay and fell in love with an Egyptian boy, and the boy died young. And Hadrian had a carving of his lover built into the temple's private, um, to his private temple in Ephesus. And the locals didn't like it. I think I have the picture on the next slide. Um, they thought it was wrong to have a statue of an ordinary person in a temple, so Hadrian had the boy disguised in drag as the goddess Medusa. And this depiction of Medusa continues to be the image of Medusa in um, Greco-Roman art. So with all these famous people buzzing about, the main square of Ephesus was a social hotspot. Um, Jason, this one here. So there are two paths to walk around. One was this open-air colonnade with white marble, and the other on the, um, my right, um, you're right too, um, has these colorful mosaic tire, tiles that only the wealthy could walk on. Um, so like the Cleopatras when they were in town could walk here. But if you were wealthy, you might actually choose to walk on the white marble. Um, and if you did, servants and slaves would pour red wine at your feet. Um, and the red wine um, on the white marble looked like blood. Um, so the symbolism it was like the blood of animal sacrifice, that you were worthy of sacrifice, you were godlike. 
And this tradition evolved from pouring red wine to rolling out red carpet, which we still do today. Um, and then uh, we know something interesting about um, Christians in Ephesus. Can you actually go to the next one, Jason? I think I have them out of order. Here we go. Um, they use this symbol to identify themselves, kind of like an eight-sliced pizza. And it's actually several Greek letters written over top of each other. Um, so Ryan and Sarah, I'm finally going to try to teach people Greek. <laughs> Here we go. Um, it stood for the letters iota, chi, theta, epsilon, and sigma, written right on top of one another. Um, so iota looks like an I, and chi looks like an X, and theta is the circle with a line through it. And then epsilon kind of looks like RY, and then sigma is like the little summation sign in Excel. Um, and each of these was symbolic. Um, so it stood for this acronym, Jesus Christos Theo Ios Soter. Um, Jesus means Jesus, Christos is Christ, Theo is God, Ios, Son, and Soter means Savior. So in essence, this symbol means Jesus Christ, God, Son, and Savior. It's an early creedal statement from Ephesus. And if you pronounce the letters, it would sound something like Ithacus, which sounds like the Greek word Ithacus, which is the Greek word for fish. And thus the fish became the symbol for early Christians. Um, if we go back a slide, Jason, to the little brick house. Um, Ephesus was also an important hub for Christians immediately following Jesus' crucifixion. Um, it's widely accepted that John, um, the apostle, ended up in Ephesus after fleeing Jerusalem. Um, and it's documented, actually, that the um, Temple of Artemis got torn down and rebuilt um, in honor of John. And then it's widely believed, um, particularly in Catholic circles, that the Virgin Mary fled to Ephesus after Jesus' death, too. And this is allegedly where she lived. I find it weird that she lived in a church, but um, that's where the tradition goes. You know, if this pastor thing doesn't work out for me, I'm actually kind of thinking history professor might be the way I go. <laughs> but back to Paul. Um, this city, this world of demigods and fertility goddesses, this world of wealth and luxury, um, this social hotspot for the ancient world's elite, this land of architecture and symbolism and beauty, this is the people that the letter of the Ephesians is addressed to. So what does it tell us? I think the world of Ephesus makes Paul's reference to the devil, the powers, the spiritual warfare all make a bit more sense because Ephesus is a city of symbols. And if you've ever talked to an architect, you'll probably hear them say something about the relationship between form and function. And while that's true, when we talk about the architecture in Ephesus, we also find there's an emphasis on beauty, power, and meaning-making in everything. I mean, think of all the symbols I just showed you. You have the Hermes staff for medicine. You have the Herculean gate with a demigod greeting you as you walk into town. There's the temple of Artemis with all of her bosoms and the colorful mosaic tiles, the red wine on the white marble the siren, the Medusa, the Christian fish, everything is covered in symbolism. And Paul has used a ton of symbolism in this letter. I mean, remember in chapter two, he talked about metaphors of being alive versus dead. He's used metaphors of being a foreigner in a foreign land. He's talked about being grafted onto a tree. Paul is ripe with metaphors. And in this last chunk of the letter, he continues to talk in metaphor. This time he uses military language. He has this belt that represents truth and a breastplate that represents righteousness, shoes that represent readiness, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, a sword of the spirit and the word of God. I mean, Paul is telling us something about what we need. Truth, righteousness, readiness, faith, 
salvation, uh, which the Greek word um, salvos actually comes from Greek medical literature, meaning wholeness. Spirit, the word of God. In Paul's day, Ephesus was an occupied territory. Romans would come to Ephesus with carts of bread and citizens would say, hail Caesar who gives us our daily bread. Does that sound familiar? From the Torah to Jesus to Paul to early Christians, this movement of God has always been about subverting the forces of empire that threaten to destroy life. And here, Paul does it again. He's subverting the symbolism of military and conquest by saying, the real weapons are truth, righteousness, readiness, faith, wholeness, spirit, and the word of God. Paul uses symbolism in a subversive way, just as the people of God have for millennia. And a second thing that Paul uses are these supernatural forces. I mean, notice how many deities I talked about in this story too, that you have a gate with Hercules, their public health is sanctioned by Hermes, their local deity is Artemis, the locals found the statue of Medusa more appealing than the Egyptian lover. We could go on and on with how many Greek gods and goddesses there were. Because the locals of Ephesus believed in lots of mythical beings, gods, and goddesses. And you know what? It's very likely that Paul did too. So some fun Bible trivia. How many gods does the Bible talk about? It's okay, Wikipedia didn't know either. Um, <laughs> there are actually a lot of gods in the Bible. Um, and I'm probably not gonna get ordained for saying that. But it's true, across the Bible, God talks to other gods. Um, there are Egyptian gods that God beats in Exodus to free the slaves. Um, there are Canaanite gods of um, child sacrifice that the Israelites must resist or defeat. There are gods of strange fire that cause death. There are gods of the sea that battle with God. There's like a whole council of gods that God presides over. God judges the other gods and punishes the other gods and gets jealous of the other gods. The Bible talks about lots of gods. The sin in the Bible is not believing in other gods. The sin of the Bible is worshiping other gods. And that might be foreign to us because it's not how we typically study or confess in church. I mean, Christianity has evolved a lot, and it's not really how we talk in the mainstream church anymore. We talk about one God. But Paul's message to the Ephesians was different. Paul's message was not, hey, your Artemis goddess is stupid. Um, you need to change what you believe. Paul might have believed some of those things, but his message was the good news is that the God of the Jews are working for the oneness of all things. This God loves you, this God has been working for your redemption when you didn't even know it. You are welcomed and loved by this God. And Paul's framework, um, as Pastor Ryan has talked several times, includes powers beyond God, which makes sense in the world he lives in. Paul acknowledges that there may be gods or deities or spiritual forces behind lots of things, and he calls these forces the powers. And he thinks the powers, which are in league with the devil, are the result of evil and suffering in the world. And I don't really know what to do with that in my own theology. I mean, I'm a 21st century person and I, I want to explain things scientifically, but it's not like the people in Ephesus lack science. I mean, they understood malaria and quarantine and surgery and vaccinations. Paul was contemporaries with and even lived among many scientific greats like Hippocrates and Galen, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. The ancient world was not as simple or as naive as I want it to be. So it's hard for me to accept this talk of disembodied powers because it's not my tradition. 
But I think it's also hard for me because it doesn't make me very comfortable. And yet I also get what Paul is doing because we kind of do this too. We talk about things that act on our lives. Um, for example, one of my heroes of spiritual care is Murray Bowen. Um, Bowen was a psychologist who um, did a lot of research on family systems. And he noticed that patterns of divorce and affairs and eating disorders and depression and other mental diagnoses ran in families. And basically, Bowen argued that um, we teach our coping mechanisms to our kids, um, whether they are useful to them or not. And his big thesis is that an individual is never acting as an individual, but is acting out the trauma of their family, going back three or four generations. So there's power of family trauma at play in our lives. Or Judith Butler, the mother of queer theory, um, she suggested that all human behavior is performative, and that from a young age we learn to perform our gender or sexuality or any number of traits um, within the context of our time period, our culture, and our social class. So more powers that shape how we live and express ourselves in the world. Or the liberationist theologians uh, will tell you that um, resources are often stolen from the global south and brought to the western world, and that the simple act of buying fruit out of season harms the livelihoods of so many folks around the world. A power, a power of economic injustice at play in our lives. Or the many black voices of critical race theory who have shown us how race was constructed historically to give power to European white folks at the expense of other colonized peoples. And many of us white folks have just come to realize that we still participate in systems, knowingly and unknowingly, that are rigged against and hurt our BIPOC and AAPI siblings. More powers of historical and present systemic injustice at play in our lives. So family trauma, societal norms, economics, racism, classism. I bet we could name more things that shape us. Maybe fear, addiction. What would be some of yours? There are different forces beyond our control that shape how we live and who we are. I think Paul sees something similar, and he calls it the powers. Something that we can't quite name or sense or recall, something outside our perception, something we are born into, something that's always acting on us, something that causes us to sin and hurt people, and something that hurts us too. I mean, his cosmic language is awkward for me, and I don't like it but I think he's onto something. And I think this nitpicky analytical headspace that I get myself into kind of misses the point. When I focus on this like, oh, but Paul, I don't believe in the devil. Like, I don't believe in cosmic powers. I don't believe in spiritual warfare. I miss out on a huge piece of Paul's theology because what Paul is saying in this chapter is that there is evil in the world. And I agree with that. And call it what you want, I mean, call it economics, call it racism, homophobia, classism, ableism, addiction, colonialism, capitalism, even work-life balance. There is evil in the world. There are systems and forces and powers that are death-dealing. And remember, Paul's ultimate thesis of Ephesians is that God desires oneness in creation. So Paul's final benediction, this description of spiritual warfare, is a final plea to recognize that these evil, death-dealing powers benefit from division, and that division undoes the oneness of creation. The powers benefit division because it undoes the oneness of creation. I mean, for example, the military-industrial complex benefits from you being scared of China. 
the capitalist system benefits from you missing your kid's school performance. The legal system benefits from you wanting revenge on who hurt you. White supremacy benefits from banning history books. Heteronormative patriarchy benefits from banning drag queens. The system of conservatism benefits from trash-talking liberal snowflakes. And the system of liberalism benefits from hating evangelicals. And none of that serves the healing, the wholeness, or the oneness of creation. So as much as I'd like to talk, or as much as I don't like to talk about the devil, the powers, or spiritual warfare, I think Paul is actually saying something really profound and something that I often miss out on hearing. He's saying there's evil in the world and there is a need for healing and wholeness in the world. But when you look at the people that are different from you, they are not evil. They are not the problem. These death-dealing powers are the problem. These systems that control our lives are the problem and the traumas that haunt us are the problem. And to subvert the language of his day, when Paul says, we need to go to war with these powers, but it's not with each other. We need to change the systems, heal the traumas, and fight back. But we also need to welcome the stranger and love one another. And what do we need for this fight against evil? Truth, righteousness, readiness, faith, wholeness, spirit, and the word of God. I can't really argue with that. I mean, it seems like good news to me. And that's where Paul leaves us. Um, he signs off this ancient letter, as many ancient letter writers did, um, by introducing the person who's been reading the letter the whole time, which I think is kind of odd. Like, and now let me introduce you to this person who's been with you for the past six chapters. And he offers one last prayer for oneness. He says, may God, our creator, and our savior, Jesus Christ, bring peace, love, and faith to all our sisters and brothers. May grace and eternal life be with all who love our Savior, Jesus Christ. So evil may not have red spinny eyes, but it does exist. It's scary and it hurts. May we be united in facing it. May we love each other in the face of evil. And may we see those who differ from us, not as enemies, but as beloved children of God. Amen? Amen. Amen.